Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Our Lady in Doctrine and Devotion, the show dedicated to furthering the knowledge and love of the Mother of God, presented by member-supported Restoration Radio. I am your host, Alexander Krasik, and I am joined by our guest, Father Herman Fleece, professor at Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Welcome to the show, Father. Hello, happy to be here again. So today we're going to continue our discussion on the Immaculate Conception by taking a look at its very interesting history and the way men sought to understand it throughout the ages of the Church, culminating in its dogmatic proclamation by Pope Pius IX in 1854 in the encyclical Inefabilis Deus. So Father, what can you say by way of introduction concerning the history of this dogma? Uh, well, the authors point out that there were essentially two periods uh, or stages. Uh, the first is what they call the period of quiet and undisputed possession. That means when it was, the belief was uh, believed and taught without any, any opposition. And this period extends from the very beginning of the church uh, up to the time of the famous controversy, uh, which uh, began in 1140 between St. Bernard and St. Canons. We're going to see that in detail. And then the second period begins with that controversy of St. Bernard in the 12th century. And is uh, the characteristic of a second period is that there is first a dispute and then there is a gradual clarification of the dogma, an explanation more light uh, as to its meaning, and then also a continual strengthening of the belief all through the church. So there is a dispute and then it becomes, the objections are answered and they become stronger and stronger through time. And the, the culminating point is the actual definition by Pius IX in 1854. So Father, could you tell us a little bit more about the initial period of undisputed belief in profession? Uh, certainly. So during this uh, first period, we have uh, clear evidence of a fact that both the Greek and the Latin churches, that also means the, uh, the different particular churches in the Catholic Church, held in common as part of the primitive tradition two central ideas concerning Our Lady, in which the dogma of the Immaculate Conception was implicitly contained. So these two main uh, doctrines uh, are the following. The first is Mary's perfect and absolute purity. And the second is her position as the new Eve and mother of the regenerate mankind. So what are the testimonies uh, that we can present here? Uh, the first is uh, Saint Ephraim, doctor of the church, he uh, speaks to our Lord in a prayer in, in these words. Thou and thy mother are the only that are perfectly beautiful in every respect. For there is no spot in thee, O Lord, nor any taint in thy mother. Now, and we have obviously uh, a lot of other testimonies of the fathers, and they are very explicit as to already being completely immaculate without any spot. And so it is impossible to assume even for, for a second that the early Christians believed Mary to have been subject to original sin because the, all the churches and all the faithful uh, extol our lady as being all holy. We have the expressions like a virginal paradise preserved from the curse of God. Again, a virgin without the slightest taint of sin 
again, a miracle of grace, holier and purer than the angels, and, and so forth. So obviously all of these ideas exclude, uh, implicitly exclude the idea of our lady having contracted original sin. So essentially the, what the authors say, say is we don't have a positive, explicit uh, testimony, as somebody saying, Our Lady was conceived without sin, but we have the same doctrine uh, taught implicitly. And then one of the authors remarks uh, rightly that they compare a, a classic com comparison among the, the fathers and the, and the early churches to compare Our Lady with the angels, even with the seraph, and saying that Our Lady is as pure or actually more pure and holier than the seraphs, and obviously that wouldn't make any sense if Our Lady uh, had contracted original sin. So we have essentially an implicit profession of, of that uh, dogma. And what about this comparison between Our Lady and Eve, Father? What did the early fathers say about this? Well, they, that's, uh, as I said, is one of the key uh, doctrines. And uh, from this one also, by itself, one is able to deduce that the early church believed in the, in the Immaculate Conception. And the doctrine is as follows. The early fathers, and we have St. Justin, St. Irenaeus, Tertullian, they compare Eve as the cause of death with Mary as the cause together with Christ and under Christ as the cause of our salvation together with our Lord. So this opposition is constantly in the lips of the fathers. And we have it also in the uh, solemn documents of the church's magisterium, and especially also as we're going to see in the bull in the fabulous Deus. So the fathers say in a word that Mary is stainless and that she has been always blessed by God uh, in honor of her son. They say that she has always been immaculate, intact and polluted, and altogether without a spot. Now, right there, we, we have, again, implicitly the doctrine, because if she was always most pure, well, then she was never under original sin. St. Ephraim uh, says, both, he's speaking about Our Lady and Eve, both were at first simple and innocent, but thereafter Eve became cause of death and Mary cause of life. So here the important uh, point of this uh, quote of St. Ephraim is that he's saying both Eve and Our Lady were at first innocent. So obviously Eve was uh, formed and created by God and she began in the state of grace. So therefore Our Lady was never in the state of sin or original sin. Then the same uh, Holy Doctor addresses Our Lord saying, you Lord and your mother are the only two who are perfectly beautiful under every respect. In you there is no fault, and in your mother there is no stain. All other children of God are far from such beauty. And then we have other fathers in, on the same uh, lines. St. Ambrose says of Mary that she is free from every stain of sin, therefore also from original. St. Augustine has a very well-known comment. He's speaking about sin and the original sin, and he says, the honor of the Lord does not permit that the question of sin be raised in connection with the Blessed Virgin Mary. So he says not only the, the even the question cannot be uh, asked, 
therefore, all the more the the assertion that she contracted original sin will be outside of any question for the fathers. Then, if we uh, consider well this thought, we have Our Lady is presented by the fathers as the anti-type of Eve that is as opposed to Eve. Our Lady is presented as participating in the sanctity of her son, and therefore she could not have been considered by the early church and the fathers as uh, having contracted original sin, because otherwise all these comparisons would be uh, wouldn't make any sense, would be actually absurd. And the last point that one can make is that the fathers not only opposed Our Lady to sinful Eve as being opposed, but they compare in a positive sense Our Lady with Eve before the fall, which obviously implies that Our Lady uh, was conceived in the state of grace. So, Father, what can we say with regard to the belief of the different churches in Christendom and also the, the common belief of the faithful who are taught and guided by their local pastors? Yes, well, good point there is that when we speak about uh, the faithful, the belief of the faithful mean, uh, means as they are guided and taught by the, by the pastors, which was always the case. Well, uh, as we saw, there were uh, countless implicit assertions of the dogma, as we just saw. Now, what can we say about express uh, profession of the dogma? We have those, not only among the, the pastors, the bishops and the priests, but also among the faithful, we have already those by the th- uh, 300s, explicit and positive uh, professions of the dogma. Uh, the Eastern churches, uh, there the belief was constantly professed without any contradiction. So that is already in the 300s, you see that they start explicitly and positively preaching the, the doctrine and there's never a single opposition or contradiction or doubt. And then this belief uh, manifested itself in some doctrinal um, professions, especially by the bishops, but also in the extension of a popular ancient feast, which was the conception of St. Anne, that is celebrated when St. Anne conceived Our Lady. And that, again, is a sign of the belief in the, in the Immaculate Conception, because the Church will celebrate a conception that uh, brings with it, uh, with it uh, sin. Uh, now, as far as the West, there are fewer traces of the doctrine, and the uh, theologians typically explain it as the fact that in the West the, uh, there was a huge fight against the appellation. So all the stress was to prove the, uh, how original sin, we contract original sin. So perhaps it is, they thought it as not opportune to focus on, on this dogma. But still it was not denied, and there was no doctrine or opinion against it, from the beginning all the way to the 12th century, when we're going to see the question of St. Bernard. So the fact that you have in the whole church no single voice opposed from the, basically the apostles till the 1200s, or actually the 12th century, that's saying a lot. Indeed. So it was really then, I guess, that the debate on the Immaculate Conception began, and there were saints and learned men on both sides of the arguments. Can you walk us through exactly what happened during this time, Father? Yes. So we said this is time when you start hearing uh, some opposition. 
And how it happened uh, was in the following way. First, we have to speak with, as we said, in the East, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, uh, different names, was already celebrated very early on. Now, in the West, it was not as early. Uh, there were still some early celebrations, so we can go through those. We have, uh, it was first celebrated in uh, continental Europe, so to speak, in the Kingdom of Naples and Sicily, that was in uh, the year 840. Then in England, we have the feast celebrated uh, by the middle of the 11th century, uh, though it did not spread fully uh, until the time of St. Anselm, who died in, in the, uh, 1109. Then in Ireland, the Catholics celebrated the feast as early as the 900s. Okay, so we have basically, by the 9th century, already in different parts of Europe, uh, the feasts are being celebrated. But the controversy actually started when the feast was brought into France. Okay, and then it was brought into France in the 12th century, and that's the time of St. Bernard, uh, and that's what uh, started to raise some voice of opposition. So if the controversy was a theological one, Father, I suppose the common people really took no part in it. They just went along with their everyday lives, and this was, this was the theologians really discussing this. Yes, yes, very true. And actually, it's, it's an important point because the, the common belief of the faithful and uh, even of the particular churches, etc., was not really um, harmed or diminished. That was always remained what uh, the opposition came in the schools, that is the universities, in the, in the classroom, you might say. So, um, and that's exactly what happened because the scholastics there had the divided opinion, some were in favor, some were against, we're going to see that in a moment. But as far as the, uh, the celebration of the feasts, of the feast of the Immaculate Conception and the belief of the faithful, that was unshaken. In fact, far from being, uh, you might say, extinguished by the controversy in the schools, in the, the universities, it actually spread throughout. And uh, already by the uh, 14th century, we have it already established in Rome. And the fact that it's established in Rome is obviously very significant because Rome is a mother of, of our churches and it's a sign of orthodoxy, essentially. But as we're going to see, there was controversy in the schools and among the, the theologians of the scholastics, and we're going to go there in a second. So when did the controversy, controversy actually begin then, Father? Yes, so the controversy began in 1114. So you see how late. Um, so, so the occasion was the following. Uh, the Feast of the Immaculate Concession was uh, spreading uh, through Europe, and then some canons of lions in France essentially took the, the feast and started celebrating it. Now, Saint Bernard thought that he was bound to, um, to write against them. He wrote a letter against them. He condemned it as if it were a novelty. Um, and his grounds was that, well, it was not celebrated in the city of Rome, which was true. Now, many say, many authors say that Saint Bernard actually did not oppose the Immaculate Conception, but some essentially rashness and imprudences on the part of these canons that essentially they 
didn't wait for Rome to make a decision and they how they explained the dogma was not clear, etc. and so forth. That's how many say. Others though say that he was in good faith against the doctrine itself uh, because, because they say he saw it as being opposed to the universal redemption by Christ. And we're going to go back uh, later on the show to that point. Uh, but at any rate, the fact is that St. Bernard did complain about the introduction of the feast and uh, that uh, kind of opened the uh, voices against it. And then, as other great uh, theologians that the that authors mention as having raised a voice against the, the belief, or, uh, are St. Peter Damien, uh, Peter Lombard, uh, two Franciscans, Alexander of Hales and St. Bonaventure, and among the Dominicans they name especially St. Albert the Great and St. Thomas. We probably will speak a little more in detail about St. Thomas, but uh, the more common opinion says that all these great um, theologians opposed the doctrine and they opposed it all essentially on one main uh, ground of argument. Their argument was, we know uh, from the faith that all men are in need of the redemption by Christ. And and here is a problem. They wrongly supposed in, in good faith, these great uh, theologians, that uh, if you believe in the Immaculate Conception, you denied that Our Lady needed intervention by Christ. But they argued, but it is of faith that everybody uh, needs to be redeemed by Christ. Therefore, it is not fitting to believe, etc. And they, they opposed. That was a line of argument. The, what happened is they failed to see that Our Lady was actually redeemed by Christ uh, in a special way. And the way in which Our Lady was redeemed was not by cleansing from an original sin contracted, but actually by being preserved from contracting it. So I suppose this is where um, the famous Don Scotus comes in, Father. What was his contribution in this regard? Yeah, so his main contribution was uh, to show that this, the privilege, the Immaculate Constitution, had a supreme fittingness, and especially, especially his, um, his contribution was to answer um, perfectly to the main difficulty uh, which St. Thomas and the other great theologians had put forward. And this difficulty was, as I just uh, said, uh, the following. Christ is a universal redeemer of all men without exception, And we have Romans, Galatians, um, St. Paul to the Corinthians, uh, 1 Timothy. And then they, from there, which is correct, they, they move forward and they say, but if Mary did not contract original sin, she would not have been redeemed, which would be against the universal redemption by Christ. And how Scotus answered was, he showed very ably that There are two kinds of redemption. One is preservative, uh, the other one is by way of cleansing. So Scotus says, Our Lady was indeed redeemed, but not by being freed from, uh, like cleansed from sin, but by being preserved from it. And uh, so he essentially develops that argument and answers the objection. And then uh, that really removed the obstacle to, to believe in some, some of the theologians. Could you tell us, Father, in a nutshell, what was his argument? Yes, so he said essentially 
it was be becoming or fitting that the perfect redeemer should uh, make use of the best or the sovereign mode of redemption, at least with regard to one person, that is the person of his mother, uh, who was going to be associated closely with him in the redemption of man. And then he shows, he was one and he says, the perfect or sovereign mode of redemption is not with that which liberates from a stain already contracted, but that which preserves from all stain. And then he gives a comparison that it is better, uh, it is more perfect way of, of uh, redeeming someone or saving him to avoid that he gets a blow, gets hit, than after he gets a blow and he's hurt to heal the wound. And so essentially it's preservation as opposed to cleansing. And uh, so he says it was very fitting that the perfect redeemer should redeem someone in the perfect way. This way is more perfect. Therefore, it was most fitting that our Lord should redeem in that way his holy mother. Most fitting indeed. Well, it seems that since Duns Scotus answered the main objection, the doctrine really began to recover its acceptance throughout the whole church. And in fact, was later universally accepted long before the dogmatic definition of Pius IX. Yes. Uh, historically, uh, the answer of uh, Scotus to the main objection was a key point because from there all the theologians essentially said, well, uh, we would like to, um, to, to hold the, the most glorious opinion for Our Lady, the, the opinion more favorable to Our Lady, and the only objection or the main objection was answered. Therefore, everybody started uh, going to the position of belief in the Immaculate Conception and abandoning the one against so it became like a general, you might say, abandoning of the opposed doctrine. So it became gradually and constantly weaker and weaker and weaker and less persons uh, defending it. And, uh, and then on the positive side, most theologians, increasingly in numbers, started defending it uh, very vehemently. And all of this was done with the approval and actually the favoring of the Holy See in the Roman Pontiffs. Father, what would be some of the most remarkable instances of the Church's acts and decrees in favor of the Immaculate Conception prior to the Solemn Definition? Yes, so I have a sort of summary here of the, the history. Uh, we have first the Council of Baal in 1439. It declared that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception was the official teaching of the Church. Now, this particular session was not uh, a binding definition because the council was then without the Pope, and therefore it's not uh, a definition in the strict sense, but it does show the prevalent and common opinion of the bishops who were assembled. Uh, then we have Sixtus IV, in a decree in 1476, he granted indulgences to all who recited the canonical office of uh, the Immaculate Conception, or who assisted at, at the Mass of the Immaculate Conception. Then we have the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, when uh, discussing actually defining the question of original sin against the Protestants, uh, essentially implicitly showed its belief in the Immaculate Conception. We're going to see now the text. Uh, the Council said uh, that it is not the intention of this holy synod 
to include in the decree which treats of original sin the blessed and immaculate Virgin Mary, Mother of God, but that the constitutions of Pope Sixtus IV of happy memory are to be observed under the pains inflicted by the said constitutions, which it, the Trinitarian Council, renews. Okay, so essentially, when dealing with the, with the original sin, they say, we are not speaking here about Our Lady, which in the context in which it was said is sufficiently shows in, uh, implicitly shows the belief of the Council in the Immaculate Conception. And then in the year 1567, we have the great Pope St. Pius V, who, by the way, was a Dominican. And I remark that because it is, though there were a lot, in, uh, unfortunately, in the Dominican order who opposed the, the doctrine, it was not a question of order. The Dominican order was not of itself against the Immaculate Conception. They had many, unfortunately, but they, they had also many who defended it. So here we have a clear example. So St. Pius V, a Dominican, he condemned the proposition of Bios, the following one, no one but Christ was without original sin, and that therefore the Blessed Virgin died in consequence of the sin contracted through Adam, and endured afflictions in this life, like the rest of the just, as punishment for actual and original sin. So St. Pius V condemned that. Um, a year later, uh, the same Pope made the Feast of the Immaculate Conception a holy day of obligation for the entire Church. Then we have Paul V in 1616. Uh, now at this time, the, there was already a practically unanimous belief in the privilege. It's almost all Catholics and virtually all of them professed it. Uh, so Paul V actually forbade public discussion of the subject in the pulpit. And then finally, we have Alexander VII. Uh, he issued a famous uh, constitution called Sol Solicitudo on December uh, 8, 1661, uh, by which he renewed all the decrees of his predecessors uh, in favor of the Immaculate Concession and against the opposite doctrine. And he subjected further the writings of those who attacked the Immaculate Conception to the rules of the Roman Index. And that's very strong. Obviously, to be any link to the index is something uh, very strong. So he really gave like a, almost like a final blow to the, to the opposition. So the authors say that by this time, this last essentially blow that Alexander VII gave, it was already ripe the the church or the situation in the church was ripe for a final decision, a definition, but still we had to wait two centuries for Pius IX to actually issue the, the definition. Well, that day finally arrived, Father, on December 8th, 1854, when Pope Pius IX dogmatically defined the Immaculate Conception in his encyclical Inefabilis Deus. And, you know, reading it, it's, it's truly a beautiful encyclical. I think that's what really impressed me when I first started to read it. He begins by describing the mercies of God towards us that led to the word being made flesh for our redemption and the choice of our blessed lady as the mother of God. It's really quite beautifully written, even just from a literary point of view, but even more importantly, from a doctrinal point of view. And in the process, he lays the foundation for, his, for what he's going to be speaking about. And one of the first things he brings to our attention is the reason for this sublime privilege, which should be no surprise to our listeners who have heard our first episodes of the series, that reason being the divine maternity. 
Yes, yes, because as we, as we said, the divine maternity is essentially the root and foundation of Our Lady's glorious privileges, and therefore, obviously, of the Immaculate Conception. And also, yes, you are quite right, the, the bull is a masterpiece in all respects. Um, it is a really a pleasure to read it and reread it. Uh, it has also a, a beautiful collections of all the testimonies of the fathers, etc. And then also we have the actual definition itself, but the whole, the whole document is really a masterpiece. Uh, truly, December 8th, 1854 was a glorious day for the whole Catholic Church and one to be forever remembered and celebrated. So as we've said in the bull, Father Pope Pius IX leads up to the dogmatic definition by enumerating the various proofs for this dogma, as we have actually done in our previous episode. So rather than look at the encyclical paragraph by paragraph, I think it would be best just to give you the mic, so to speak, Father, and ask if there's anything that you'd like to draw special attention to in the encyclical. Yes, while I was preparing for the, the show doing my research, the best uh, thing I, uh, I found was actually a reference to it, an explanation of, of it, the history and the, the importance by Pius XII himself. And he does this in an encyclical on our lady called Fulgens Corona. And there he speaks of the definition and the effects it had in the church. And the quotation is rather long, it's longer than usual, but I think it will be uh, really the best commentary on the encyclical will be by Pius XII himself. Can you please read that for us, Father? Hmm, certainly. So, uh, so here are the words, um, I have the text before me. He says, Pius XII uh, says, Our predecessor of happy memory, Pius IX, surrounded by a vast retinue of cardinals and bishops, with infallible apostolic authority, defined, pronounced, and solemnly defined, quote, that the doctrine which declares that the most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instant of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted to her by Almighty God, through the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of mankind, was preserved from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God, and therefore must be held firmly and constantly by all the faithful. The entire Catholic world, continues the Pope, received with joy the pronouncement of the pontiff, so long and anxiously awaited. Devotion of the faithful to the Virgin Mother of God was stirred up and increased, and this naturally led to a great improvement in Christian morality. Furthermore, studies were undertaken with new enthusiasm, which gave due prominence to the dignity and sanctity of the Mother of God. And here, uh, that's a quote, and then here Pius XII goes on to make a connection between the definition of Pius IX and actually the apparition of Our Lady of Lourdes, which is actually very insightful. And so here are his words. Moreover, it seems that the Blessed Virgin Mary herself wished to confirm by some special sign the definition, which the vicar of her divine Son on earth had pronounced amidst the applause of the whole Church. For indeed, four years had not yet elapsed when, in a French town at the foot of the Pyrenees, the Virgin Mother, youthful and benign in appearance, clothed in a shining white garment, covered with a white mantle and girded with a hanging blue cord, showed herself to a simple and innocent girl at the grotto of Massabielle. And to this same girl, 
earnestly inquiring the name of her with whose vision she was so she was favored, with eyes raised to heaven and sweetly smiling, she replied, I am the Immaculate Conception. Well, I think these words of Our Lady Father, by which she herself echoed the definition of Pius IX, are a perfect way to end today's episode. So is there anything else you'd like to add in summary before we close out our episode, Father? Yes, I would like to make a practical application. Um, we should remember that the Immaculate Conception, as Our Lady called herself, wished St. Bernadette to honor her daily with the Rosary. As we know, Our Lady herself had a Rosary and essentially encouraged and made St. Bernadette say it every day before the, their actual revelations. Um, and she desires that we do the same. Uh, so that we obtain uh, from God many great graces and especially, especially the grace of eternal salvation. So this should encourage us to be always faithful to the rosary. And we can be certain that Our Lady, being the best of mothers, will protect us and actually conduct us to heaven. Thank you for your nice closing words, Father. And thank you for your time. We'll talk to you again next time as we continue the series. May God bless you. Thank you. God bless you too.